Okay. Hello, beautiful light-filled souls. Welcome to my channel. I'm so happy to do another interview. It has been a while and I'm here with Louisa Peck to talk about near-death experiences and after effects and, and a whole lot more. But please check out the links below on this video to learn more about her and to check out some of uh, my offers. I really love contacting people and connecting with them. So I'd love to connect with you. And also I'd love it if you ordered the Audible version of my book, because it's fun to connect with those who enjoy Audible. But hi, Louisa, and welcome to my show. Hi, so I'm on now. <laughs> you are, yes, yes. And I, I love to begin by just letting you talk about who were you before your near-death experience briefly, and then how did you die? Okay, and I just want to spill the beans that Trisha and I are friends that um, <laughs> we've met at IONS conferences, and so I think we both feel really excited to do this interview because we're comfortable. And I'd also like to say that I might sneeze because I kind of feel like I need to, but maybe that'll go away. Um, so, uh, who I was before my near-death experience. Um, I grew up in an alcoholic home and some people come out of that scot-free and other people don't. I came out of it with a lot of insecurities and uh, so I compensated for that by uh, achieving a lot um, in terms of academia and being vain and <laughs> to say it in a quick way, right? Uh, so I had finished uh, college, so all I had left really was being vain. So I was going to nightclubs a lot and trying to feel like I mattered because I could attract attention or whatever. So on this particular night, I went to a nightclub with a friend who was also a cocaine dealer, and we did uh, all the cocaine that he had. And uh, oh, I'm just thinking I was looking at the wrong thing. Anyway. When that was gone, we, I wanted more because I was feeling like I was dancing. We were at this really cool club that I thought was the coolest club I'd ever been to in Manhattan. And I felt like if there was ever a night that I could really feel okay, this is it, right? And so uh, we just started asking around, anybody got cocaine, anybody got cocaine? We got led to this guy. It was just a shady looking guy. He reminded me of the kind of scrawny guy that's in Saturday Night Fever, if you can think of that character. And he said, yeah, I got some stuff. I got some good stuff. And so he sold us, I think a gram, but I can't, it was half a gram a gram. I don't know, it was 50 bucks worth in the club. And, uh, and so we started doing it. My friend said, this is doing nothing for me. And I, being a good uh, alcoholic addict, Thought, well, maybe if I do the whole thing, I'll get something from it. So I did the whole thing <clears throat> and it did nothing in terms of a high. But I later learned that it was lidocaine, not cocaine. It had numbed our gums when we put them on to test. So it was some kind of anesthetic. But the fact that it gave no high and that I later ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous with a lot of dealer friends who said in the 80s, we cut cocaine with lidocaine and someone sold you pure lidocaine. So I am 90% sure, 99% sure that's what it was. So what it does is shut down all your automatic nervous system. I got, my heart was slowing down. My breathing was slowing down. Was this at the club or did you this go home? The club. No, this wow. was at the club. I remember being in the bathroom in line for the, the toilet and just thinking, uh, wow, this I'm getting tunnel vision, and what a cool uh, side effect that is. That I was dying didn't occur to me, um, and I was so happy that for once I felt cooler than everybody else in the bathroom. But then when I got in the stall, I could not read any of the graffiti, and I knew some of this is in English. And what's wrong with my brain that I can't read it? That was the first start time I started to feel alarmed. Then I began to feel there was no air in the club. And I went back to my friend and said, there's no air down here. There's no air. I was, by that time, breathing as deeply as I could because my, I think my breaths had shrunk. But once I got panicked, I started to breathe hard. Um, but my heart was going so slowly that it wouldn't get to my brain. So on the outside, 
I had a grand mal seizure. I guess I uh, fell back from the bar onto the floor in the nightclub and did this whole thing. Later, I had bruises all over my head, all over my hands, all over the back, everything uh, from doing that. Um, and the bartender began to do CPR. But I knew none of this. Um, I had what's called an amnesiatic NDE. I'd never heard that term before. Um, I think even Alexander used it at our last conference and I was like, oh, that's what you call mine. Because I did not see my body on the nightclub floor. I had one moment, I felt like I had hit my chin on the bar and that it had worked like a Popeye punch to shoot me straight up in the air, which made to me perfect sense. Um, I was excited that I was shooting straight up and I had a very brief moment of the sense of leaving the nightclub and can you use swear words at all? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> leaving all that bullshit below me was the feeling I had. And then I went up into this pure blue sky and I was just filled with euphoria. And I did have a sense of me as myself, but I forgot all about kind of the job of being Louisa in the world. Like that whole thing had been left with the bullshit down there. Now I, I, was just, I, have, to, I have to ask a question because it's such a beautiful part of, of your story. But this moment where you shot up, I've often thought this, and I've wanted to talk openly with someone who will talk about drugs and alcohol, but I've thought that many addicts and alcoholics are longing for God, you know, are longing for that release. And it's the greatest high, you know, that you could possibly have <laughs> in that moment <laughs> to just leave all this behind and be in that light. And so do you feel like that was kind of like, oh, finally, I understand. Well, I hadn't really gotten to the light. I was just out of my body, but even that was such a relief you know i mean I, I will get to the light later in my story but this was just uh i was in some kind of landscape uh, symbolic landscape in some in-between world but i definitely do think that the light the real light is what people are seeking when they do particularly uh um you know the the drugs that heroin and others that act as endorphins rather than as dopamine. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I had this feeling that I could do a back bend and a back dive. And so I, I thought I'm going to do a reverse swan dive because I can do stuff. That's the feeling <laughs> I had, you know, I was really like a little kid excited. So I bent over backwards. It worked perfectly. I did this backwards swan dive. And then I see that the ocean is under me and I have a brief thought like, oh, isn't it like concrete when you hit the ocean and you're moving really, really fast? And instead of fear, I just had, well, we'll find out. You know, there's no fear. And so I hit it and it went okay. And I went way down deep under the water. I had could see that beautiful, you see it sometimes in underwater scuba diving movies where the bubbles are going up around you. I saw the surface way up there and I had another little thought like, wow, my surface is way up there. I wonder if I can get there okay. And again, then I'm there right away and it's no problem. Then I see the shore and I wish I could say it was a beautiful tropical shore, but it was not. It was kind of a, I'm from the Pacific Northwest and it was kind of a Pacific Northwest beach, meaning a lot of barnacles and a lot of seaweed and it's not like gorgeous like that. But I thought, oh, I want to be there. So the next thing I know, I'm just wading out of the water um, and I, turned along the beach and I saw a house up on a mesa. Um, it was as if the ocean had eroded away and left this kind of sea stack with a house on it. And so I thought, oh, I want to be there. And so then I'm there. And my feeling is like, wow, cool with everything. Wow, cool. Like that was <laughs> yeah, kind of the full extent of my emotional vocabulary <laughs> and I sometimes think that that's how it feels to be an angel too that they can't feel any of our like oh whoa what is me stuff because they live in this world where it, it's all good and so um one thing though was that the the mesa now was kind of a pile of boulders and they were covered with this really gross slime it was like rotten seaweed was what I thought um and 
uh, to get to the doorway of this house, I had to climb through it. But I had this, again, same sense as with the swan dive. I can do this. I can do stuff. And so I climbed beyond it. Once I, once I got above it to the doorway, I had lost my body. So a lot of people talk about uh, that there's some gross stuff we carry with us, our, this purging that has to happen, that you shed your anger, your fear, your, all of these darker emotions. To me, I feel like the sludge was that stuff. Um, I didn't know it at the time, though. I didn't know anything about NDEs at all. So I just thought, phew, that's over with. But did you now, feel like you were a ball of light after that? Or did I you just like, feel like a... It's high off the ground. Hmm. And the best I can compare it to, I had no body. But I was a little bit Alice in Wonderland and a little bit snake. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm kind of like a slightly bummed that I don't have a higher perspective. But I can go over the door sill into the house. And so I'm like, hey, good enough. Good enough. And I'm very low along the ground, so much so that I saw the floorboards in tremendous detail. They were very worn. It was very old. Many people had walked there. And I knew it was my ancestors who had worn this floorboard down, these floorboards down. Now, in real life, the twerpy vein girl who back in the New York nightclub did not give a crap about her ancestry, never thought about her ancestors. The spirit that entered this house was thrilled. Like, we all go here and now it's my turn. And I'm so excited to join the rest of us. And I had the feeling of us. Um, so I also sensed my grandfather. Now he is the only one who I never got to meet. So, um, I had several grandparents who had died, but I didn't sense them so much as him. I sensed his joy that we would finally get to meet. Interesting. Um, who was he to me? A picture in my dad's closet, you know, but I felt all this joy at the prospect of meeting him. So there was supposed to be a chair in the middle of this room that looked out at the water. I knew there was supposed to be an armchair and I knew that my ancestors all loved to sit in it and look at the view. And the sun had started setting. I wanted the chair, but wasn't there. But as soon as I said, oh, I wish I could see the sunset, then I started getting pulled along the floor. And even though I didn't have a body, it felt those pulled by my heart towards the windowsill. And then up and I'm thinking wow and then over the windowsill and I started flying across the water across the path of light that the sun made across the water and I was flying toward the sun and this is sometimes little bits of my life would come back to me and I would think hey wait a minute people can't fly this <laughs> This must be, is this a dream? Is this real? That's what I thought. And then something answered me more real than anything you've ever known or done. And so I was kind of like, okay. And I was heading toward the sun. And then I had a thought, it's getting bigger and bigger. I'm going to hit it. Again, without fear, just we'll see what happens. And then I hit the sun and passed through a sort of a, filament and I was in the core of it. Now, knowing what I know now about NDE symbolism, this is so beautiful because I was an atheist and I rejected and really despised everything about the church and everything I'd heard about God. But when a human being sees a sunset, we all get a feeling of awe. And so that's why my higher power led me along that path. I felt awe towards the beauty of the sun. And also my father had taught me that the sun was the giver of life. So if you were to have a physical representation of the source of me, the source of life, it would be the sun. Beautiful, beautiful. So this idea of, um, did you feel like it was God, the light, or did you just no. feel like it was awe? I felt like it was goodness and goodness. because I didn't believe in God, you know, so I couldn't really think, oh, it's God because 
So when I went into the sun, then I was in the light for real. And mm -hmm. I was permeated with that joy and that bliss and that love beyond measure. And I was starving for it. And I remember having the feeling like, finally, you know? Yeah, and no, I relate to that. <laughs> like, finally, <laughs> I know what love is. <laughs> yeah, and finally, I'm complete. And I, I want for nothing, you know? It's just this complete bliss. And then I had the sense, almost instantly, I can't really say and then, but almost instantly, that I was being held the way a baby is held by a parent. I couldn't see anything because all I saw was the light, but you can know things without seeing them visually. And I knew that the parent was embracing me and I knew that the parent was pouring this love into me. You are so loved, you are so, and it was not like, oh, we do this for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it was special yes <laughs> it was me that they loved it was I that they loved you know and um and it's as though someone knows you better than anyone in your life and better even than you know yourself and they just adore you so I was ready to just hang out there forever I was so complete and happy and I loved the parent too that's one thing I can say I had love back and uh all of a sudden, apropos of nothing, the parent says, you can't stay, you're not done yet. And then it's lights out. Just like when parents cut the light, it went from the light and the bliss to blackness, total blackness, and a slight sense of falling. That was the only time in my NDE that I was afraid was that bit of falling. But then I was just kind of in a black realm I had already, as soon as they said, you can't stay, I had pitched a huge fit of saying, no. And I had the sense like a little two-year-old or three-year-old, I'll show them they can't, you know, <laughs> they can't send me back. Like I wanted to, where are the shins? I want to kick them, you know, like. That's <laughs> so funny. <laughs> I, I wanted to fight, you know, and I did have a sense of the, of the parents saying, case is closed. You know, almost thinking I was cute, even in my feistiness, you know? There's so much forgiveness, isn't there? There's so much like, oh, anything that's dark or anything that it's just like, that's just brushed aside. <laughs> yeah, I think of it like if you were looking at a box of puppies, you know, and they are tearing up the newspaper and thinking they're so tough, or they're like <laughs> stepping all over each other, not caring who they're stepping on. And like, you're not going to say, what a reprehensible being, you know? <laughs> You're just gonna go, oh, that puppy. Yeah, puppy. puppy. It's so cute. <laughs> I know that love. It's it's unusual. It's yeah. just it's in our human experience. We don't feel that at all, or very often. For, for tiny harmless creatures, as yeah. soon as anything is like on our level, we're like, whoa, you know. Yeah. And and so for a little two-day-old puppy, you can feel that. But that's how God feels about us. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. We'll have to take that out as a quote. <laughs> well, you can't really because there's uh, someone in some AA book has said, we're all puppies in a box to God. Oh. But I mean, I, I understood that, you know? <laughs> yeah. So you were loved that much. So you woke up in the club well, still or were you in the hospital? The transition period that I started seeing these little white stick figures like they were drawn with chalk on a blackboard. This was my transition and I actually they were playing these little nonsense games going on a swing set going on a teeter-totter and they were just little happy figures and they were saying these little nonsense things like uh, how many hippos in a flim flam and like these little and I thought well this is nowhere near as good as the light but this is a sort of a diversion that the parent has given me until I can go back. Cause I knew I was going back sometime. And so I thought, well, I'll just watch these guys for eternity forever, for however long it takes to go back. And then one of the stick figures got closer and the chalk circle of the face filled in like a dinner plate. And I remember feeling like, yo dude, I can't, I can't see, you know, like, everybody else and then he started saying uh how many fingers what is your name and then i remembered and this is hard for people who fear death to 
imagine. But instead of saying like, oh, thank God I didn't die. I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I remember this stuff. He thinks that he's a he and I'm a me and he thinks we're like separate. And he wants me to do that trick where you like burp out sounds and it's like in a code so he can know something. And I just thought, I just don't want to do that anymore. But then he's very <laughs> persistent. And so I rose to the occasion and I said, Louisa and three. And then I kind of had this sense of, okay, I give up. I'm, I got to do this. And as I said to you, I felt like I'd been told I have to stay in kindergarten for 50 years. You can yeah. When you can fly and feel great love, and then you have to come back and, and be stuck in time and, and do everything. I really encountered another person that because of the telepathy between me and the parent, I knew how telepathy worked, you know? And the idea of to go back to make sounds and send things, the whole the idea, we are trapped in our bodies. We are trapped and we have these little portals of eyes that you know, are relaying us however much of a tenth of a second behind reality we are, you know, in our ears, and we're putting together a model of reality instead of being part of it. Yeah, that was the beautiful part, and I, I totally relate, and you know I relate because you read that part of my book, <laughs> you know, but, but yeah, that idea of coming back and just being stuck here in this body is annoying when I was that consciousness out there and flying around out there, and I was like, Oh, I'm trapped inside her. Now you went like this. I had a sense of he wants me to use that loaf in the garage down there. And the garage down there was my mouth and the loaf was my tongue. Wow. But that's how removed I was from my body and from speech. If you've ever like been in an apartment and you're aware that there's a garage below you, that's how I felt about talking. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. So, yeah. So how did you integrate that? How old were you at that time when you had I it? I was 22. 22. So as soon as I came to, and there was a huge crowd around me and there was also a huge puddle of water. I had the thought that they had thrown water on me to revive me, but it was actually sweat. And I have often wondered the fact that I had ingested enough lidocaine to kill myself and then came back fine after three minutes of being gone, how does all that lidocaine get out of your system? So either God just said, it's gone, or God said, we'll make her sweat it out. Or I don't know, because I, I actually have seen other people who've died momentarily and sweating a ton is normal. It's, I, I didn't pee myself or anything because I jumped into the back. But anyway, um, you know, we got up and I didn't understand why everybody was staring. I didn't understand why we had to go upstairs because the nightclub had been underground. I was just, okay, I guess we're doing this. And I was five years old in my mind. And I've talked to other indie years who came back five years old also. Yeah. So we're sitting outside, but my need to be cool starts coming back to me. And so I light up a cigarette and we're waiting on these benches outside the nightclub. I didn't realize, but of course, we're wait some people have called 911, we're waiting for the ambulance. The bartender, I'm so embarrassed to tell this part, but the bartender came over and he said to me, you were gone for three minutes. And, and my uh, friend had even told him to stop doing the uh, CPR because it wasn't doing anything. You know, it was just kind of like, he just wanted to cover the corpse. He didn't want to see it anymore, you know? Wow. Um, but my reaction to him was um, embarrassment. And I didn't like his sense that he knew me somehow that I, cause I didn't really know him at all, you know? And then I didn't like that his mouth had been on my mouth. I was kind of like, ew. And I just felt embarrassed. And I didn't, I don't know that I even said, thank you. The guy mm -hmm. that saved my life. So he's out there somewhere. Um, wow. <laughs> thank you. So then I said, what are we doing to my friend? He said, we're waiting for the ambulance. And I said, oh. and then I said, who is it for? And, or I asked him, is, is it for me? Like I, I began to put this together. And then I just thought of my parents finding out I'd done cocaine. I thought of hospitals, which I hated. And I was five years old. So I was just like, no, no I'm not going. 
And so my friend didn't want to, you know, the whole cocaine thing was not really something he wanted to tell a whole lot of people about either. And he just said, come on. And he grabbed my hand and we ran and there were also taxis waiting out in front of the club. We got in and we went home. So um, the next morning, I remembered this with perfect clarity, perfect clarity. And I came out and told my roommate about it. We're in an apartment in uh, um, Upper West Side, Manhattan. And uh, she said to, with the parents, she goes, so was that like God? And I said, yeah, I guess it was God, but I didn't uh, feel moved by it at all. And I couldn't read the word helicopter in the newspaper and a few other words were like Greek to me. I had a little bit of brain damage. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I went in the room by myself, I kind of was like, either this really happened and there's God and there's an afterlife and there's this I, just other side or cocaine's really hallucinogenic. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody knows that it's a hallucinogenic and I had this huge hallucination and maybe you know another option maybe my brain was dying and like the very last thing you come down to is is like a dream of love like that's what I like to think that like how when they take out more and he ends up singing daisy daisy this was my daisy song right mm -hmm. so it wasn't real so that's what we're going with okay <laughs> so even though you were told in that experience that this is more real than any real you've experienced, you decided that was just part of the dream and that was just part of the experience. And yeah. wow, I haven't actually talked to someone on this channel who chose to go, nope, nope. <laughs> well, how many alcoholics have you talked to? Maybe just one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because if all that were true, I couldn't keep getting drunk all the time. And I would have to change. And I, my whole family was atheist. Um, I had been a big stink bomb atheist. Like my thesis was written about the death of God. Like it was just in my shtick was there is no God. So either I have to change completely and give up the drug that I need or I can pretend this didn't happen. And also as a child of an alcoholic, there's a lot of things I was used to kind of shoving away and saying that didn't happen, you know? Yeah. Um, so I did, I chose that. And so that's the end of the story. Uh, and I decided, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, so God had other plans. So even though you shoved it away, did you feel moments of difference, you know, those after effects that people talk? Did you have little glimpses of them where you thought, ooh, I'm different? I didn't. Huh. I, the first thing that happened was I was walking on a beach, still very vain, still trying to be a love addict. And the first of 14 inexplicable paranormal events happened to me. That one was seeing a ghost. I saw the ghost very clearly. He looked like a guy off of fish sticks. This was in Gloucester, Massachusetts on the beach very early in the morning. And he was as real as you are. I mean, he, he, I saw him completely, but he didn't answer my greeting. So after I passed him, I was angry and I turned around and he wasn't there. And so I walked on a while and I'm like, where did he go? Where did he go? Cause we were the only two people on this huge beach. And, uh, Someone back and I had the only tracks. That was five years after my near-death experience, okay? Uh, then, I think seven years after my near-death experience, I just knew that my nephew was gonna die. Um, and it was, he was unborn. I didn't actually know that he was gonna die so much as I knew my brother was gonna approach this ocean of sadness. And the only time I really knew what was going to happen was the day before the birth. I knew he was going to, something was going to go wrong. And I sat in my car. I, my brother was in the car next to me. We'd had lunch. And I just stared at my dashboard like, what can I tell him? What can I, what can I do? You know? And it was that most awful feeling. Like, 
I can't go knock on his window and say, roll down the window, hey, your son's going to, your baby's going to die, you know. And so when he called the next day to tell me that my nephew had died in childbirth, I um, had this very guilty feeling of being half sad by the news, but equally blown away by the fact that I had known it. You want to feel only grief. And I carried guilt for that until I went to my first IONS meeting and somebody pulled me aside and said, you can't tell people. There's nothing you could have done, you know. So there are, uh, I have a huge list of weird things that happened to me. <laughs> this is the list wow. of weird things. Um, it would take, a, it does take a long time time to yeah. tell them all so uh, i'm gonna try and kind of skip through them and, and keep it short yeah um, and, but can you categorize them because that you know they when i look back i have a lot of them too you know like there were ghosts in houses there uh -huh. was you know knowing a little bit of the future so it's yeah. a lot of the after effects well, was what it are for me is that they are god chipping away at my refusal oh interesting so when those first two happened, I kind of just shoved them in the box also. Didn't happen, didn't happen, or that sure was weird, but let's not think about it. And very vaguely had the idea that they were tied to my near-death experience, but not very much. So <laughs> I eventually, my uh, drinking got worse and worse. And so in uh, 1994, I drove home just completely pie-eyed. You can see quadruple. I don't know how it works at the brain level, but I was. Um, and I was bombing along at 80 miles an hour, wanting to die. I didn't really want to live anymore. And uh, I approached this railroad bridge where all the reflectors, because the road got narrower, I had no idea where. So I just kind of went for the middle. And when and I thought, if I die, I die, that, and that's great. Um, and I sailed through, and I got home, and... I reached my log cabin where I was living then, kind of the opposite extreme of Manhattan. <laughs> and uh, I got out of the car, I was using the car door to hold me up, and it was a starry night. And I was thinking, man, I am such a badass when I drive drunk. And uh, then something shot from the sky, threw me like lightning into the ground. And what it was, was my guardian angel just bowing, you know, just to get through this shell I had of, no, no, don't pay attention. And it bellowed at me or shot through me. This is the last time I can help you. Wow. And I just got chills. <laughs> <laughs> and at the same time, kind of this after reverberation, because it's not words, it's knowings, right? Uh, you do know right from wrong. Because I had been writing all in my journal about how well, nothing matters, it's all bullshit, you know, that kind of drunken thing. You do know right from wrong, and you can do better. So if we talk about uh, there's a turd in the punch bowl. This, this really <laughs> damper on my drinking. It was just not the same now that I'd heard this voice. And so it took me uh, a month after that to really uh, hit bottom and go to AA. But I'm still like so prideful and I'm still trying to be atheist at the same time, right? So AA has the steps on the wall with the God stuff in it. And I'm just like, ah, God, pew, I hate that stuff. Oh, these people talking about God and calling it he, oh, I just hate this. But there was love in the rooms. And it was like the tiniest reverberation of what I had felt in the light. I could just kind of recognize this is where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, and I have a question for you, because this is something I believe, whether it's, you know, CODA or AA or, you know, Aladon or whatever, anyone who goes through the steps, I think they can lead you to the same awakening as a near-death experience. Yes, they do. They can. Because by the time you work the steps fully, you, you do see that love is all that matters, you know, and that's the very same message we get and that our job here is to love. I feel like working the steps completely 
will bring you to that same place of enlightenment and people reach it in different ways. But And, so, and it's but interesting, so you have the near-death experience and when you work the steps, did you kind of come full circle and go, oh, okay, okay. It takes a long time, Trish. <laughs> I know, I want to skip ahead. So that was okay? So the near-death experience had been in 1982. So I must have been a little while with like, when my nephew died, but it's hard to keep the years straight. So I'll, I guess I can kind of speed through these. When I did get sober and I, I went to Greece when I was 100 days sober and I just had miracle, 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 miracle. Like they just came all the time. It started off with that I was just called a friend for no reason, said I'm going to be in Greece a thousand miles away from you, you know, because she lived in, um, oh, what's that little teeny country in the middle of Europe? starts with L. Luxembourg. So why do I call my friend that I've done all this terrible stuff to, to tell her I'll be a thousand miles away? I, I, I say, I'm going to be in Greece. She says, I'm going to be in Greece. I say, oh, well, I get there on this day. She goes, oh, that's too bad. I need there on that day. And then I said, well, when are you going to be in the airport? We were in the airport together for like a, a five hour window. Oh, wow. So I got to meet with her, have lunch and make my first amends. Oh. And I'm kind of like, what are the chances of that? And then all these other things aligned in Greece. So I kind of came back with a little bit of a sense of God. Um, when my sister died in 1997, I was with her in the room. And this is what's told in Heather Dominguez's film. But how the light kept telling me she couldn't cross over. My angel kept telling me she couldn't cross over and that I needed to tell her about the light. And so I just sat there and I, what is this? What's going on with me? And I could sense the light coming in the hospital window and kind of pooling over her body. And it was like an engine revving up. They wanted to take her, but something had to happen in her before she could join them. I see it as like millions of our ancestors loving her and wanting to take her. But she was afraid and she felt that she, dying of cancer was a diss from God. That's what she told my sister. So I got up and I eventually just said to the voice, okay, okay, I can do it. She's not going to die for a long time, but I'll do it, you know. And so I uh, did tell her all about the light and how well she'd done in her life. And, you know, basically told her she had to, it was time to go and that Jesus would take her because she was a Catholic. And then I went and sat down and then she hemorrhaged 20 minutes later and died. But... I was in all this anguish and panic and trying to get people to help her. And the little doctor put a stethoscope on her and said to my brother and me, her heart's still beating, but when it runs out of oxygen, she'll, it'll stop. And I just wanted to take that little lady and like throttle her. I like, I just don't want to kill her. Why aren't you saving my sister? And then my sister came to me and filled me with love. And she said, I am wonderful. And she may have been saying thank you. Like, I didn't actually hear. All I heard was, I am so wonderful. I am so wonderful. I love you so much. And Aww. I could also feel that she loved the little doctor. And she loved the nurse in there who called her by the wrong name. And she loved my brother. Like, I could just feel her pouring love. And she gave me the light again. Like, I got to feel it again. So this was a very big one to try to stuff in the box. At the same time, I'm going to meetings and I'm hearing more and more about the steps. Shortly after this, I'm driving my car, I get to a stoplight, it turns green, and I'm here with perfect clarity, don't go. And so I look in my rear view, there's no one behind me. It's night, I'm like, okay. So I just stare at the green light. And then I get this feeling I'm ridiculous. So I say, how long don't go? And then a car goes through the intersection at about 100 miles an hour, right where I would have been. Fastest I've ever seen a car go. Wow. So then I'm like, thank you. And I'm starting to know something's going on. <laughs> I, to me, I just say, I have this voice. And another part of me says, can you connect that dot to your near-death experience? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. So that happened. And then I just have to ask a quick question yeah. with the death and, you know, with knowing someone who was afraid to die and helping them transition. Mm -hmm. What do you say to people who you 
talk to because that's one of the biggest questions that so many people who haven't had a major spiritual experience or near-death experience um they fear death what do you say to them wow um so the experience with my sister dying and with my dad dying were very different Uh, my sister had become catholic and she had had a long time of battling breast cancer to know that she was going to die and she had become kind i wasn't even ready to jump to the level of kindness and love because we've had a kind of a cantankerous relationship all of a sudden she's like here's an olive branch you know i love you you're my sister and i'm kind of like whoa that's not how we are you know (laughs) and so she was ready with everything but that last step of like the trust game when you fall into people's catching arms that was all she had to do and everything was ready for her. My dad, by contrast, had denied his alcoholism all his life. And I knew that when he died, he was filled with regret still of like, I was fooled every day by this thing. Every day, you know, I said, I'm not going to drink and every day, you know, and so I felt like when my dad died, he still had work to do. He still had work to do. I know he went to the light and I've talked to him since, you know, he's great now, but death was like a, a life review where he felt he'd flunked. Yeah. You no. Know? Yeah. And there's no bullshitting when you're dying. You see with absolute clarity, clarity where you let yourself and others down. And God doesn't judge us, but we judge ourselves. And really, that's no fun. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if I talked with you about this or someone else, but my dad died an alcoholic as well. And when I felt him go into the afterlife, his life review was so long and so extensive. It was just like every little thing was analyzed. And I said, this is tedious. He's like, it's okay. I'm still supported in love. It isn't isn't painful. It's just for my soul to see all the different ways that my life and other lives might've turned out with different choices. Right. So with my sister, I had the sense she's free. She's full of joy and the light. With my dad, I had the sense he's really busy with a project, right? <laughs> and they get through it eventually. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's just kind of different. So the one that eventually turned me around is very hard to tell the story, but and it seems so anticlimactic that this would be the one that would finally make me say, it's all real. Um, so this, um, I think, was, was 2003 or four. My son was a toddler. And uh, I had a dream about a spider and I was at the house where I had stayed when I first started dating my son's other mother um, within a same-sex relationship. And I dreamed about this huge spider um, and it was on a juniper plant and I was terrified, but I thought, no, I can do this. So I asked my sister-in-law to give me a glass I put the spider in the glass or can, but the spider lay on, I'm going to say her back and showed me her belly. And I, in the dream is zoomed in and I could see these triangles of sort of gray, beige and, and tan that were all interlocking and made this pattern almost like spirograph or something, you know? And uh, in the dream, I thought or heard uh, diamonds of infinite precision Anyway, and I had the thought, wow, God is in everything, right down to the details of the spider's belly. So I was like, whoa, tried to tell my partner that in the morning. She leaves for work. And then I am getting ready with my son, and above the place where I sit at my computer, there's this big old black ping pong ball on the ceiling. And I'm like, I don't think we should leave until we find out what the big black ping pong ball is. So... I said to my son, I go in, it's the biggest freaking spider I've ever seen. I'm terrified of spiders at this point in my life. So I thought, okay, I I was brave in the dream. I can be brave now. I'm like, what? What? (laughs) So I'm like, okay. So I get the glass. I get up on a chair. Spider falls in with this huge clunk. I cover it. 
and I run outside in my yard and then I go, oh no, I'm not letting this spider go in my yard. I don't want any monster spider running around my yard. So I run down the street a little bit to my neighbors and I throw it in a juniper bush. <laughs> Whoops. And the spider just lies there on her back on the juniper branch and shows me her belly. And wow. there's the pattern, the diamond. Wow. Right. My brain, I can't describe my rational brain was like, what is happening? What is happening? Parse, 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 parse. Cannot do anything. The best I could come up with was that I was in some kind of science project. <laughs> so I looked around for cameras or something. <laughs> yeah. And there weren't any. And then I thought, okay, gotta be sure you're not dreaming. Let's look at this. Is it, is it really the same pattern? I look, I see, I say, it's real. And the spider turns over and retracts into the wow. plant. So then it's about, I don't know, six months later, I get this idea. I have to go to my friend's birthday party. I haven't seen her in years, um, but I decide I got to go. It's a huge pain in the butt to bring my son with me. Nobody else has kids at this party. Like it was so much work to get there. And then the conversation turns to um, clairvoyance. And I say, oh, I had this dream once. It was so silly. It was clairvoyant. And I say, tell the dream. And my friend, who's super woo, says, um, well, do you know about like spirit messengers? And I'm like, um, yeah, a little. And she's like, well, the spider, you know, could have been your spirit messenger. I think that one like tells you when your life is going to change, like cutting the strands of the silk. And then she goes, isn't that when you broke up with your girlfriend? And I'm like, no, no, it wasn't. But it was when my girlfriend started seeing the other person. And so the dream had been when I first met her and the cutoff had been when she parted, her life parted from mine. When I got home, I Googled uh, Spider Messenger. It also said, are you a writer who's not writing? And I had stopped writing for this very codependent relationship because I was always taking care of her stuff. And I just bawled. I just bawled and all the walls came down finally. Like I finally, that, that, that sense of like, I am not gonna fight anymore. Fuck you, rational brain, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, but you are wrong. This is truth and everything you try to tell me is false and I will no longer get tempted by you. And, and I just, I looked at the ceiling where the spider had been and I said, you're here, you're here. I know you're here. And I just cried. And uh, ever since that moment in 2004, I have known with certainty that God is with me. And knowing that has let me hear my guardian angel much better. The shell that separates me, like that had to bellow the first time. My guardian angel visits me quite often now and tells me stuff. And um, like I have a picture um, that I wanna try to show you. So I, I got breast cancer. I was gonna have an AA celebration for my 18th year sober. Then I was going to call it off because I, my surgery was two days later. Then I found out I was going to just have a lumpectomy. So I just changed the party to a get to keep my boob party. <laughs> Went on Facebook, changed the name, everything like that. And so tons of friends, tons of friends came out. I think like 70 people in my tiny little house. So they're all, my living room's full of people and they're all singing to me. I'm in the dining room and they're singing happy birthday to me. And I look out and I see this ocean of people singing. And, you know, there's the cake and all like that. And I had this thought like, oh, Louisa, you are so sickening. You're just like such a narcissist. Why do you set up these situations where you're the center of attention? You know, I hate you. And then the angel came to me. I felt it from my left and it was like, wrong. <laughs> and it said this is the whole point of life just let them love you oh and so i said okay and i changed and i looked at them and now it was my job to let them love me so this is me 
with one camera. Can you see what's by my head there? There's an orb, yeah. There's an orb. This is at the moment I am being told. This one is harder to see because a friend took it with a different camera at oh, a I see it. It's moved. I see how oh, it's different timing. Yeah. So the orb is moving away because it has told me what it needs to tell me and it's going away. So and there's a pink part to it too, almost, which well, symbolizes love. No, or is that your hair? It's my hair thing, but it oh, doesn't okay. have details to it. It has um, little orbs within the orb. Oh, wow. And so when you look at the other, even though the resolution isn't as good, those same things are there and it's rotating. Oh, wow. So it's kind of, it's this energy. I don't know what it is. <laughs> That's but so it's cool. a little one. And I know God is a huge one. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's so beautiful that, you know, I, I, I'm on a lot of different websites and blogs that talk about narcissism and, you know, mm -hmm. healing from relationships with narcissists. And one thing, though, that, that hits me is like love. And I, I've heard Raymond Moody talk about this and other people that that experience of that level of love is capable of healing that that focus yes. and so many americans i think are just trained to be self-focused and you know like we're not talking about necessarily the personality disorder but we all have levels of narcissism and the healthy is the seeking attention but the healthy is just loving yourself and letting others love you and just being in that love and that's that is what God wants is like, if yeah. you love yourself, you can love others fully. And we have so many sayings in AA, but one of the ones that I like is that um, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. We, we also talk about that. Like when we came in, like our eyeballs were turned inwards. Like, what about me? What about me? And like, when you become spiritually whole through the steps or through a near death experience, you can turn that around and say, who are you? You know, yeah, yeah. And, like, I'm okay. God's got me. So I'm okay. I don't need anything from you. But aren't you a beautiful soul? I'd like to get to know you. When I feel like that, it's almost like now I live in a very loving way, because it's as close as I can get to the light. Yes, yes. Like I write and I say that, you know, God gave me a particular mission and teaching, you know, like, from junior high to high school to college, they need so much that I was always outward focused on how can I help them, you know, even if it was just something minor. And that gave so much joy to my life that God knew that I had to do that, that that was the path that I had to walk in order to be okay in this world. And and I think so many people, you know, I, I would go home and I'd get in my victim mode and then I'd be unhappy. And whether it's turned inward, you know, as victim or turned inward as, oh, I need this, want this, it just leads to unhappiness when it's turned mm -hmm. outward. There's so much more happiness, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you do have to love the self too and to accept love as you learned in that moment. And that's yeah. Yeah. And the, like in AA, I love hanging out with people in AA because we all know everyone they've been to hell. They've been to hell and now they're here through the power of God. Right. They may not call it God. They may just call it a higher power. They may just call it that. I don't know what it is. Like people in AA have different degrees of which to which they're willing to sort of define their higher power. But we share that common thing of knowing whatever you call it, something has brought you back from, from hell. And so that there's kind of a, a love and a solidarity that I feel there. When I go to a near death conference though, it's a little different because we get that the it's all about love it's just all about love and so like when i meet you i have none of that like kind of like oh how am i gonna like make her not think mean things about me because <laughs> <laughs> it's all you love <laughs> like hey doesn't have, i don't have to worry about that she's not gonna think mean things <laughs> you know That's what funny. i mean and so there's just this total freedom to um to to be me and, and watch you being you. And, and um, it's just, oh my God, I wish life were like that. I wish everyone were like that. And I meet other people who haven't even had NDEs, like Ned, who, who runs the NDE thing on Facebook, he has the light. 
you know? And it's just getting that, no, being mean and sending little skewers to other people is not what I'm here for. And you know? we feel it. And I think those of us who have gone to that place or have an energetic uh, sensitivity, I mean, I look at people sometimes and I'm like, you think I can't feel that? <laughs> that thought that you're thinking. <laughs> and it's okay when I'm in charge, like in a classroom, because then I can, you know, like manipulate. Uh -huh. this situation and get them to think differently of me because I'm in charge. But when you're just out in the world, you yeah. can't necessarily change people's opinions. They just walk by you in the grocery store and their, their kid is sending you love and they're like, you know, like yeah. in their own world and you know, maybe it has nothing to do with you, but they're angry about things and they send you a bad thought. Like you're in my way. <laughs> I read thoughts accidentally sometimes. And so, so one time this, I was running the writing center at University of Washington and this girl came in and she wanted to sign up for a slot to see a tutor. And so I said, what's your name? And she goes, Wendy. And I just kind of, my brain farted really big and I just wrote Lee. And then she goes, why did you do that? And I go, I'm sorry. And I scribble it out. And she goes, that's my last name. I was waiting to say it. And so... Oh. Like I answered honestly, that's all I could do was say, well, I must have picked up what you were thinking. And then she's like, I've never been here in my life. And she, <laughs> she got really mad. How did you know my name? And, um, you know, I was just like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I was really embarrassed and I apologized. And she came in later for her appointment. And she looked at me across the room and she was just sending daggers. <laughs> Maybe, I know you spy on me for some creepy reason. <laughs> and you're like no I promise <laughs> I'm working with a client and I'll just get an idea like oh maybe I should have them you know use this particular kind of phrase at the beginning of their sentence and and then I'll say no that's not what we're learning and then they'll do it like this happened just once I can't say Dale she 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 put this phrase in the beginning of the sentence and she turned to me and she said I thought this might be nice to, to try doing that and so I'm like yeah no I, I didn't think it was a good idea. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> and then it's come up just even playing charades sometimes. I'll just know from no clues what it is. And um, tends to be, weirdly enough, on my left. It's from, that's where the, it's almost like in my energetic field, this is the thinnest place. Interesting. I don't know how, I, I, that's, I mean, I can't back that up or I can just say it kind of tends to come from the left. So I'll tell one more um, funny story. This is what made me go to Ions. So I knew that God was real. I knew this and everything, but I wasn't going to go meet. I just didn't feel certain enough that it was about my NDE to go to Ions. But so I went to Home Depot one time, I pulled into the parking lot and um, I think of my friend, Joel, and I think Joel's a carpenter. He's so nice. I bet he comes here a lot. And then I think, I really like his wife too, Wiley. They're just such a great couple. And then I think, boy, I bet their sex is still really hot. I mean, they have the two kids, but I bet like every now and then they just send the kids somewhere and they, it's just still on fire. And then I see Wiley naked on a bed and I've never seen her hair up down. It's always up in a bun and she has it all down in her face and she's like lying on the bed naked looking like hella hot and then I go oh my god what's the matter with me I don't think Wiley that way and I'm like Lisa I'm just really embarrassed at my in, at myself I go into Home Depot and then here's the thing about the spider's belly is at first I go the wrong way looking for what I want and I kill maybe about 15 seconds going the wrong way realizing it coming back go down on the main aisle where the cashiers are and here comes Joel coming the other way if I had not made that mistake of going down the wrong aisle, I would never have run into him. But we run into each other face to face. So I go, oh, Joel, hi. <laughs> I was just thinking of you. How are you? <laughs> and he goes, oh, man. Wiley and I just sent the kids to grandma's for the weekend. And we got a bed and breakfast. And it was much needed. Oh, so you knew. <laughs> so I wanted to say, yeah, who knew Wiley was so hot, you know? <laughs> so what had happened is my friend, who I'm connected to by a little thread of love, because I do care for them, parked at the other side. We talked about it later. He was at the far side of the parking lot. 
thinking of his wife and the weekend they just had. And somehow I picked it up. Wow. Isn't that interesting? When that happened, I was like, okay, there gotta be something. Googled audience, went to a meeting and began my path of like connecting the dots of all these things and what they meant. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. And you know, that, some of your stories remind me of other stories too. I felt one time like I was in Groundhog Day, you know, the movie where you keep living the same day over and over again because I was teaching at this junior high and I would have a dream about what was going to happen the next day. And it was the same thing. You know, I open the cabinets, I pull out the worksheets, I'm talking to my students and I'm like, why do I know it's going to happen at this time and this way and this student's going to say this thing? <laughs> and I was just living. I was like, darn it, I'm just going to mess it up. I'm going to do something different. <laughs> so I turned on the radio and I said, we're going to dance for 10 minutes. And we just did something crazy. And then, and then we did the worksheets. <laughs> but, yeah, I had to break it up. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I do feel um, one of my people in the Seattle Ions said that he was shown his future as this bifurcating, bifurcating, bifurcating path. So we have multiple futures and at each junction we do have a choice i'm going to take this future or that future and then that one bifurcates and so on so i on my last hike was was warned by my angel you're going to fall on this particular dangerous part i was hiking alone in the cascades and so they were like you be really careful and so i'm like okay i'll be careful and the angel's like no you need to be really careful because this is going to suck. And so, <laughs> okay, so I walked really, really slow. What happened was at a certain point, my knee gave out. If it had given out at the, and I was in a hurry, I could, it was really steep circ I was going down. And so there's a, just a wonderful story. I'm actually trying to write it up as a story. And I tell it in one of my YouTube things of that I ended up going to a tree and asking the tree to help me because I felt like I was shy to ask God because the whole reason that I was on this hike alone was because I had so much pride and I, I was too full of ego I felt to pray and ask for help and the tree answered me um, each life must ask directly meaning you need to pray for yourself I can't help you here and then I'm like saying yeah but what about this one and all this thing is each life must ask directly so I, I tried to walk again, my knee excruciating pain. I'm like 60 miles from one road, 60 miles from the next. I've got a beacon to call the helicopter, but I just said, can you give me some guidance? And then I downloaded all this information about what was wrong with my knee, what I needed to do to heal it. And I was told to take this little Velcro band and put it around my knee and that God would use that, or my angel would use that as a kind of beacon for where to send the energy to heal it. And I could hike the 60 miles remaining. And I did. And um, I mean, I hiked crazy. It was a crazy heavy pack, crazy terrain, everything, and no more pain. And uh, I went back last year to thank the tree. And uh, she wasn't there. Hmm. There were only little trees. Wow. So, <laughs> like, as best I can figure, the angel took the form of the tree for me, knowing, knowing everything about me, you know, and that this is the route that would take me to enough humility to ask for help. So, I mean, my sense now is that, you know, God, God is everywhere and God can do anything. And we just don't get to know why, but we're always always covered. God's always got us. This is my final question for you. And it's one I've been asked and I wasn't offended by it. And I know you won't be either, but you know, like skeptics sometimes <laughs> ask really tough questions. And I was interviewed by this uh, interviewer out of uh, London and he's interviewed, you know, like a lot of people. And so a lot of people who are skeptics uh, watch his program and he said, well, how do, did you, I have to ask this question? Did you hit your head? You know, is that how you had this near death experience? And I think he was just questioning, you know, my sanity in a sense, like, how do you, how do you make sense? And how do you tell atheists 
who hear your story and go, okay, yes, I drank and yes, I did drugs and yes, I've had all these spiritual experiences and yes, I had this denial. How do you explain the truth of the spiritual world to them? Uh, for a little while, I lost my sense of smell. I used Zycam and it burned away my olfactory nerve and I could no longer smell. And I have gotten it back through hard work with sense, but during the months, it was maybe like six months that I could not smell at all. When people would make a big deal about a scent, I began to feel like they were faking it. I began to feel like, why, why are you making this big? Yeah, what? There's no smell. There's nothing. You know, <laughs> I remember one room I was in and people came in and said, oh my God, what is this? Oh, it's bleach? What, what? And I was like, it's nothing, you know? <laughs> And so even though I had smelled all my life, as soon as that ability was taken away, I got just really irritated when people would talk about a smell. So I see skeptics the same way. Part of them is saying, why not me? Why don't I have this God consciousness if you have it? You know, screw you, it doesn't exist. Right? Right. <laughs> and then in my case, someone who desperately just all I wanted was to stay an atheist. All I wanted was to hang on to my materialist view of life and go on my merry way. But I don't think I would be doing any of the good work that I do now with my blog or with my NDE talks or what all the people that, that I'm able to help now. God was like, we sent you back to do some stuff and you're not doing it. And so we're going <laughs> to get you sober and get you God conscious so you can do stuff. Now, if I were a skeptic, if you talked to me when I was uh, 22, when this happened, I would have said, well, aren't you just floating along on your ego there? You're so important that God talks to you. You're so, aren't you special? Screw you, you're lying. Why <laughs> 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 are you dumb? You know, right? So I really think that I my heart goes out to skeptics because I think that uh, we all have some memory of God, and we all truly want to unite with that. But it's almost like the difficulty I had with letting the people love me. The skeptics are hurting children, and they are afraid to trust that they are loved. Yeah. And throw all this intellectual garbage out. <laughs> and I, that's, that's, that's beautifully said. And I have to add, because I think it's kind of funny, you know, just as an end note, but I did well on standardized tests before my near death experience. I did better after, even though there may have been some brain damage, you know, from being dead, because I used some intuition. I knew how to go to this place. And I was like, what feels like the answer? <laughs> and, and, and so IQ test and, and standardized tests became a little bit easier because I'd use a little bit of intuition in that process. And so those people who rely heavily on their brain, I'm like, Hey, but there's intuition. <laughs> there's a higher consciousness that you can tap into, even in a test. <laughs> I never thought to do that. <laughs> you can do it later. <laughs> I'll do it later. Yeah, but what, a, what an interesting story you have. Thanks for sharing a lot of the, the uh, smaller stories along the way. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah, I hope I didn't talk forever. Okay. No, 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 but uh, I enjoyed it. And for those of you who... Are listening um, please check out the links below to keep up with us both but thank you very much and may you be blessed bye